I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. And we are the co-hosts of Womance. As we were headed into the holiday season, we, like everybody else, heard the news that Joanna Lindsay had passed away in October. And as you might suspect, this felt pretty, oh, what is it? Synergistic? Synergistic, jarring, also very strangely coincidental. Yeah, it felt like a lot of things because we had this month of Joanna, January, planned for a really long time. And so finding out the last week of December that she is no longer with us was pretty surprising news and something that we wanted to address as we head into this larger project. Yeah, she's a lioness in her field. She's given all of us and the genre so much. And so as we head into January, one of the things that I think we want to keep paramount in our thinking is that critique is an important part of what we do here at Womance, but critique can come from a lot of places, not the least of which is love and respect. And I think critique is also crucially about the text. And we always come to romance with a critical eye because we think that it is worthwhile. We think that it's a genre that can hold up to it, that deserves this kind of thinking, this kind of deeper consideration. And And we think that's especially true of Joanna, as it was of Jane Austen last year as it has been of Kathleen Woodowis. And so we are really excited to move forward with this project. And, you know, it's just whenever you lose somebody, their importance in your life becomes all the more apparent. And Joanna Lindsay led a remarkable enough life as a writer that millions of people are affected by the news of her passing and have also been affected by her novels, The Good the bad, the The, titillating, the absurd, the kind, the funny. And I think that's one of the things that I'm really excited to dive into Joe Hanyuri about is that here is a multifaceted author Mm -hmm. who is using every paint in the paint box in a world and in a genre that she came to command and like brought new people into. Yeah. And so with that, I just want to express a really deep gratitude to Joanna Lindsay, her family and her publishers for sharing the work with us. And we are so excited that we get to, in some small part, share the work with all of you. Yep. Without further ado. <laughs> January commences. I'm Isabeau. I'm Morgan. And this is Womance. A podcast about romance novels. About burly soldiers. About dirty cats. About defending the castle keep. About secret good dads. Yeah! (laughs) For the first time ever. About sexual gratification and wanting to name it. It's a podcast about turrets. A podcast about squad goals. A podcast about tumbles in the woods. Mm, A podcast about evaluating your choices. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And ourselves. This week, it's January. And we are so excited to be talking about Defy Not the Heart by who else but Joanna Lindsay. Your girl, Joanna. 1989. How many books did she write in total? 63 or 67. It's an odd 60. 
over 60 novels. Yeah, her first novel was published in 1977. Mm. It was a chic novel called Captive Bride. Yeah. Oh, no. But she said in an interview, like, those were the romance novels that she grew up reading. And so that was her first. That makes sense that that was her first foray. It does. Uh, We've talked a lot about chic novels. (laughs) We have. We've given them enough space. But, uh, you know, if you're curious as to why they're bad, please go back and listen to our series. Chic Chic Heartbreak. definitely worth it also one of the things about reading johanna Lindsay like this and sort of like a deep dive which i've never done before back to back to back i have read nothing but johanna Lindsay for the last five weeks of my life and it's one of the things that i always tell people that was most exciting to me as a person who loves to read but also thought of themselves as an aspiring writer for a while where it's like one of the things that was great about J.K. Rowling and the Harry Potter series was the break that she took between Prisoner of Azkaban and Goblet of Fire because she grew so much as a writer and Johanna Lindsay never took a break and grew so much as a writer. You see her, yeah, you really are able to see like the nuances and the movements and it's gotten to the point where I can read the first and last chapter and really get a rough guess of what time the book was published in, but without looking. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the reasons we kind of started our, you know, Jane Austen was more of like a cultural excavation. And I think this is our first time kind of doing basically auteur theory on mm-hmm. a romance novel author. And when I think about auteur theory, you know, the people who started that, they really embedded themselves in a single director's works and watch those movies back to back to back over and over again. You know, when I was a film student, I was like, God, that's dumb. But (laughs) you can see how you become like a scholar of one person's work. Well, it's just like the familiarity. Like I understand it. I understand what's going to happen. I know the movements. Like I said, I'm really able to like detect at what point in her career something was published. And like I wait for the spanking. I know it's coming. What's amazing is that she always (laughs) sees the threat and it's always a threat (laughs) of spanking. Someone's going to get spanked. And like, yeah, like very rep butlery. I'm going to spank you. You deserve it, you brat. In like the first quarter. And then Uh like will or will not deliver by third quarter. Yeah. And actually speaking of brattiness, that Mm -hmm. is also one of the like signposts of like at what point in her career. Because Joanna Lindsay, and this is specifically noted in reading the romance, (laughs) which I talk about all the time. I would suggest that this is a vast oversimplification, which is common with any kind of female character. But describing someone as like a plucky heroine, Mm -hmm. I would say Joanna Lindsay's characters are assertive. Mm -hmm. They are, for the most part, in some way sexually assured more than their peers in the books. Mm -hmm. And that's noted. I mean, we'll go into it with Defy Not the Heart. All right, back of the book. Hit it, Isabeau. Defy not the heart. A woman of fire and determination. Fire and determination. Reyna will never submit to a union with the despised Lord Rothwell. Never. To escape her enemy's nuptial bed. Nuptial bed. She offers herself to her captor, the breathtaking golden giant Ranulf, promising to make him an even greater lord than the villain he serves if the proud knight agrees to marry her instead. But Ranulf desires more than a marriage of convenience. From this beautiful Hellion who treats him with scorn while making his blood run hotter than liquid flame. (laughs) 
Raina must come to him of her own free will and surrender willingly to the passion that threatens to consume them both, even though the greatest peril must surely await such a brazen and turbulent love. So this tells us really nothing. Literally um, nothing. But I think we should do a boner about back summaries and what their job is, really. Yeah. Whenever romance genre book backs have a very special purpose, which is to tell you how horny the book that you're about to read is. And because covers won't do it. Covers won't do it anymore! <laughs> Certainly not the cover of Defy Not the Heart. Which is a wintry castle. Yeah, it is a, I'm not even sure if it's period appropriate. It's not. This is a medieval novel. It's a, what is the family? Lady Ella was a part of them. The historical moment. Oh, it's King Richard III, his very first crusade. What is the family name, though, that defines the period? The Plantagenets. Plantagenets. Mm-hmm. Plantagenet. <laughs> the Plantagenets. The Plantagenets. It's a Plantagenet era novel, which comes into play because Lady Ella. I actually think this is super appropriate because I think we should start by talking about the heroine of this novel. I think we should too. Lady Ella. Lady Ella is our hero's cat, whom he loves very much. It's named for his evil stepmother, and he assures that the cat is fed by his squires. He assures that the cat is coddled and cosseted and fed sweetmeats. And one of the ways that Lady Ella actually works in this novel is a way to humanize a pretty, brooding, uncommunicative growler. And that his love for this cat signals good guy. We don't actually get a lot of his like... Internality. Well, his internality is so interesting because we do get a little bit of it. But not as much as other heroes. But Yeah, I think what's unique about this hero is that he kind of lives the uninvestigated life. Like he is very assured of himself and his choices and he's made them for obvious reasons and everything's very logical. But his relationship to Lady Ella, who's a cat with like a broken tail, who's very skinny. She's missing patches of fur because of previous flea infestations. She sounds a lot like my cat Corduroy. She frankly does. Yeah. And she's like very loud. She's very assertive. At one point, may or may not fart in our heroine's face on purpose. She definitely in the heroine's face on purpose. <laughs> Anybody who's ever owned a cat knows that cats do shit like They do it on purpose. And this yeah. book does the same thing the vet does, which is gaslight the shit out of you. Like, why would, a, why, why why would, would an animal, animal do that? that to you? They don't have human emotions like that, you crazy woman. Yeah, exactly. You lunatic. Yeah. And then our heroine is gaslit and feels bad. So obviously I connected deeply with him and it is solely because of the cat. But I think about like a lot of writers who try to do like those little like something, something about the heroes. I think animals, especially in romance, this is not unlike the ferret trope that comes up yes, a lot and like Lisa Claypass and like others where it's like you need a somewhat broken creature yeah. to both be an access point or like a nodule of goodness in our hero but also that like vaguely represents the hero themselves. Yeah. So like in Reynolds like here is an ugly creature yeah that's full of love and mischief and like that's ran off to a T yeah exactly like it doesn't come across as hacky it Mm-mm. doesn't come across as like look he's really sensitive kind nope. of like prodding or cloying mm-hmm. device and I think Lady Ella does really serve to demonstrate an internality like an object that holds you know not just special meaning but is actually a character development piece right and I actually beyond being like this locket is important because he loves his mama. Right. Like, and I think that's so shitty. 
I think that's so right of you to bring up. And I like actually want to spend just a little bit more time with it because I'm telling you Lady Ella, the true heroine. No, (laughs) but what you say about as like as a piece of character growth, like there's this moment where Lady Ella farts in our heroine Raina's face and Raina's very upset and like dashes out barefoot into the cold castle. And she's like on the stairs and she recognizes herself as overreacting, but she doesn't know how to come back and apologize. Well, she demands that Randolph ban banish Lady Ella from the, the bedroom. Sure. Because the farting. Cool. But also because she's jealous of the fact attention. that Randolph is like, no. Right. And why would I do this that? cat and like yeah. isn't as vocally or physically affectionate with her in public. And so then there's this moment where our heroine, Raina, is sitting on the stairs and she's like thinking about herself and she's like, I really fucking overreacted. I really did it this time. And then like Randolph comes up behind her totally fucking buck naked and he's like, she left and I won't invite her back. And like (laughs) in that moment, there's like this moment of compromise where you're like, when you love someone, you have to like move yourself. You have to make room sometimes. It's not like he's like, it's not not like Lady Ella is like sleeping out in the rain. She'll sleep in the antechamber with Lanzo, his squire, who will like cuddle, cuddle the shit out of her. Yeah. And like eventually Lady Ella's invited back, which is about yeah. both of them becoming more flexible. And uh-huh. like the fact that he had to make the first compromise yeah. in the form of Lady Ella, I think was actually a really deft maneuver of Kat as interlocutor of yeah. internality. Yeah. This novel doesn't work without Lady Ella. Yeah. For sure. But I would actually argue this novel, it has an enormous cast of characters. Yes. And I It's like a Marvel movie. It is like a Marvel movie and not unlike, well, a little unlike a Marvel movie. (laughs) If you extracted any of these characters, the story, the character building of our hero and heroine does become wobbly. Yeah. I mean, it seems great because I think of Kathleen Woodowis... as someone who was able to throw a lot of stuff and get quite a bit of it to stick. Mm-hmm. But there's so much of those books that could be cut. Yes. Became exhausted by the number of plot points in this book, but yes. I never at one point was like, pointless. No, because she brings them back. She ties all the threads together. So in some ways... Also, each conflict represents an important phase of the characters falling in love with each other and starting a life together. And each phase is also romantic. I always think of like a television series, right? The series of conflicts that's going to build to like a penultimate and then Mm -hmm. like the final conclusion is happily ever after, right? Every single part of it not only relates to character development, but also relates to the central project of romance itself, which is the pleasure of falling in love. Yes. And that's remarkable because there are no less than one, two, three, four, five, and a chaotic neutral six villains. Yeah. With individual projects. Yeah, with very individual projects. Against our hero and heroine. Yeah. To greater and lesser success, which is also interesting, the fact that you have like really different animating factors for our villains. I also like one of the projects of this book is like nakedly capitalistic, like what it means like to work and to work for yourself versus to like own land and have, you know, serfs work for you. Yeah. Everything about this book is both complicated but it's like, I don't know, the funnest version of Game of Thrones where it's like nobody's going to die at the Red Wedding, but there's still enough like stakes where I was like, what are we going to have? What's going to happen? Yeah, I think that's super true. I also think this book is saying something significant about 
patriarchy and matriarchy, which I think I want to get to later. So can we put a pen in it? For sure. Actually, I think that might be part of my weirdest part. Okay. So we'll get to that when we get to it. That sounds good. So Raina or Ranolf? We've just talked about Lady Ella. We just talked about Lady Ella, but I think Lady Ella was really talking about Ranolf. Okay. So our hero, just his backstory, he's been working as a mercenary so he could save up and buy his own land. He's the bastard of a lord Mm -hmm. and a lowborn woman. And he has felt slighted by his father. His father didn't acknowledge him until he was, you know, older than nine and then sent him to a terrible kind of night trainer. What is it called? He was apprenticed and then squired to this really bad dude. Um, Just a tough kind of abrasive character. Right. They didn't teach him like the stuff he actually needed to know to be upwardly mobile. Right. Like chivalry, how to like dance at court. And then that's where he met his number one squad member, Sir Walter. Yeah. And Sir Walter is chivalrous and has had more experience because I think he came to that Lord as like a employee as opposed to like a child. And so he's very resentful of his father who has willed all of his land and title to his other bastard child, except his mother is a lady. Lady Ella. In fact, the Lady Ella of the Plantagenets. And he also gets his heart deeply broken at 16, so he doesn't trust courtly women, which is the first main obstacle of our hero and heroine falling in love because Raina is the daughter and only heir of a lord who died on Richard's first crusade. So he's got a chip on his shoulders working as a mercenary, Mm -hmm. and he has been hired to steal our heroine as she remains vulnerable following her father's death in the crusades and also exceedingly wealthy to being stolen as a bride which is Mm -hmm. a thing you could do. Yep. And he is hired to do it. His one last job before he turns it in becomes an honest nobleman. Land owner of Faring Cross. Of Faring Cross, which is its own thing. Anyways, so that's our hero. Mm -hmm. He's very tall for the era. Mm -hmm. He's fair-haired, violet-eyed. Violet-eyed. Big chest. Any Tamora Pierce fans out there, he's not a mage, but he does have eyes like wet violets. Okay. So now let's talk about Raina. Raina. What can I say except this is the beginning of a heroine I knew I would love. The book opens with her at the ramparts of her castle, the tender age of 18, calling for boiling water for the gates to pour on the invaders that are trying to steal her. And she's like yelling at her beloved work people, her own squad. And she's like, get out of here. I love you too much. You're useless. You have no upper body strength. I need rocks. I need fire. I need boiling water. And she's I was wearing like, her own custom armor. She's wearing her own custom armor, which is really heavy. I also that it talks about that she's not quite strong enough for her own armor. And yeah. so it, like the weight of it is very heavy, but she's like has to wear it for her own safety, but also because of the status that it like gives her yeah. in front of like the other, not knights, but like actual soldiers under yeah, her and employ. And she can confuse them. They don't necessarily know that she's the lady of the house and so they're able to work without distraction. Right. Because part she's of like thinking. barking orders because her captain of the guard has like fucking flew or something. No, he like went to escort. Someone. Oh yeah, yeah. He's yeah. like, he's conveniently not there and his 15 year old squire is like, lady, get down! And she's like, you have no upper body strength. You're no use to me. Get down there and like wet down the thatch of like the inner bailey. I love that the detail of this are just like thrown out like, you know, breadcrumbs to ducks. And it's yeah. like, here's the inner bailey here's the thatch here are the yeah. animals like wet skin 
chains. Like, so the guys who are trying to steal her have murdered several of her cattle and are wearing their wet have skins. killed the animals, stripped them of their hides, and have dunked them in the moat that was meant to protect them, except they had an inside man, yep. a guy pretending to be a pilgrim who lured the gates for them. Right. But, like, I learned so so, so much, much and about I was medieval never distracted warfare. by it. No. This is really a masterclass in historical romance world building. Joanna Lindsay loves classical warfare. She does. That's very she, clear. She loves it as much as she loves spanking. Yeah. <laughs> it is going to come up even in novels like futuristic novels like Warrior's Woman. She's still <laughs> imbuing it with classical warfare because it's like her passione. Yeah. And it comes through but it's never distracting in this book. No. Not the heart, probably because this book is it's a Plantagenet romance. But like all of the details do the thing where it's like it's adding to the character. So the fact that like our characters, like she's thinks to herself, they've killed my animals to make it easier for them. Damn it, damn it, damn it, damn it. And like all of those details tell us everything that we need to know about Raina off the bat that she's actually an incredibly competent landlord. Mm -hmm. She knows a lot about warfare tactics, which tells us a lot about her father and how he views her and like her upbringing and the fact that she's like ordering people around but she also has this incredible love for them we learn so much about her in 10 pages before anything really happens she's just at the gates defending her castle yeah and I was like I'm so here for this see and I was immediately skeptical like (laughs) oh is she in her custom armor it felt like pandery in a way that I was like Ah! oh I did not feel pandered too and I felt pandered too up until the moment when she was like I hate this this is a dumb part of my job this armor they had designed just so that she could scale out of a window and escape her own castle undetected because the captain of her guard figured something like this would happen he just thought it would be like a surreptitious like night attack and so knowing that she's not doing it because she's like oh boy I love it the thrill of the battle yeah was a relief to me and I was like, oh, this is someone I can relate to. And about the time I discovered that was when she was like, they're killing my livestock. Yeah. You know, like there wasn't any like pep talk that she gave anybody. No. She wasn't like, brothers, lift up your sword. No. She was like, damn it, damn it, damn it. Like it was all very. Um, it's like two o'clock in the morning. It they, was all like, very domestic. We're so fucked. I loved that where she has this feeling. She's like, if we can make it till dawn, maybe somebody will come. Yeah, and if they don't she come. she had sent letters to two different potential suitors and was, was going to marry. marry whichever one showed up first. Right. And she's like, I just need to hold out. And the person that arrives is Ranulf. And to abduct her for somebody else. Yeah. And he was like, oh, well, we'll just defeat these guys and then she'll welcome us and it'll be really easy to get rid of her. Yeah, it'll be great to abduct her. Which is true. Super true. But then as they are absconding with her, Sir Walter realizes it just makes more sense because they didn't know what Clyden was like. Clyden is a really nice property. They own several towns. Several towns. It's very lucrative. Mm-hmm. Also, her father was successful in the Crusades, mm-hmm. which the novel is clear is more of a money-making scheme than yeah. an actual like religious project. None of it is a li- religious project. It's not, and it's not discussed as such in the book, which yeah. was like very refreshing, especially for 1989. Well, which was also one of those things like this book does everything in historical romance.
romance where I think people would be like, but I'm like, it doesn't fucking matter. Because it's speaking to my moment. Yeah, this is not about, this yep. book is not about then. No. It's about me. Yep. It's about now. It's not about 1159. Exactly. It's about 1989 and is so good that it is universally applicable to 2020, 2019 when yeah. I started reading it. So anyways, I guess that was just a rant about how much I liked it. But yeah, so she's got this money. Sir Walter uh, convinces her and then convinces Randolph, like, let's just go to the Abbey in the woods. You guys get married. Your problem of not having enough land is fixed. We also discover that her problem of like, you know, there was a fire in one of her holdings that she's been trying to recover from and some crops failed that she's been trying to recover she from. She needs ready cash. She d- and he's got it. And he's he got a mercenary. it mercenary days. So it's like a very mutually beneficial match. And she also thinks that he'll be the best person for Clyden because he doesn't have another property that is his family home that right. he feels more beholden to. Like he will be there just for Clyden. Right. Because he's a bastard. He can't inherit anything. So like his. Well, he could. But like he doesn't know that to. and neither does she. He's not going to. Right. He's been cut out his unacknowledgement. It just says so much about her where she's like, I'm not making this decision for me, which then becomes an obstacle in their love story. I made this decision for my home and my people. There is also something really refreshing. And I think it might be partially why so few authors are interested in this era and also partially why the people who are interested in it are so deeply interested in it is that marriage is solely an economic project and in nobody like says boo about it Nobody's, love is like no, yeah. way down the list at most yeah. you can like hope for is friendship yeah exactly and so like falling in love becomes to be honest much more realistic yeah in that kind of scenario it's less romantic in script font italicized right because it's like how can we be together it's like nothing like that it's like we're already is- married it was easy for her to convince her lord's castellan to let them wed because she was like he'll be totally loyal to you he's like you're right loyalty matters more in this situation and it's just so practical and you're right Isabel nobody says boo about it and that's what I appreciate but I think you're right because then it makes the love story so entirely domestic and prosaic yeah. like the scene that we talked about earlier with Lady Ella and like kicking her out of the bedchamber, like that's a thing that like people in 2020 are still trying to figure out where it's like, exactly, I love you, but your cat hates me. How are we going to, how are we going to do this? And they also becomes about like, how are we going to compromise? Right. How am I going to get what I want? How are we going to communicate effectively? Well, I mean, this book especially. But I want to say an arrangement like that feels so much more relatable to I met this guy at work Mm -hmm. or I met this woman at college and we were close together and we had the same friend group and similar interests. And so now we're trying to make it work. It's about trying to make it work. There's not immediate like fireworks, kazowie, zip, zip, zop, you know, like it's it's just about finding someone who makes sense and then trying to make it work from there. What I love about this book is that it truly makes that everyday domestic bliss feel deeply romantic in the way that it is. It's a labor of love. Yes. I was just about to say, but like it never shirks the responsibility that it is well and truly work. Yeah. Like learning to communicate to someone in their love language and not your own is a labor of love. And it comes with mistakes. Like one of the things that I love about this like meet cute ostensibly is that she shows up in her armor to, you know, thank him for rescuing her, except he doesn't recognize that she's a lady in his armor. And like, he's like, where's the lady of the house? And like picks her up by like her breastplate. And she's like, it me. And then he's. 
so surprised he drops her and then he's so embarrassed by yeah. his behavior that he like fucking sulks for hours yeah and it's like that's actually kind of nice where like you have a hero who's like really bad at communicating but also understands that's an obstacle that he has to overcome yeah there's a scene where after they're married he is fearful that he's going to crush her because previously he's only been sexually interested in very buxom strong strong ladies strong ladies and Raina is very small and he's scared that he's going to hurt her so he goes to the village sex worker sex worker Red Red Alma Alma, who has a lovely life freaks out when she sees him she's like please the lady's been so nice to me I do not want to rock this boat she brings me poultices she doesn't make me feel bad yeah like everyone in the town and she has a lovely home it's the first village village person's home that we see in the novel I think the only only one one. but it's lovely he talks about the fact that she has beeswax candles and she's slow roasting a mutton in the middle of her hut and she's got linen uh, curtains and he's like oh this is this is very nice this is very nice and this is the sex worker of the village and the witch of the village and she's living this very nice life so anyways Red Alma she explains to him very clearly like you've got this cat you could easily crush the cat do you ever think about it no you just don't kill the cat because Mm -hmm. you don't have to think about it Mm -hmm. he's like well I'm worried so she's like okay grab my breast and like let's see how firm your grip is and then she like is immediately like okay this could be a problem (laughs) this is very firm this is too much and then Raina is in the doorway because she was delivering foodstuffs to Alma and sees him grabbing her breasts and then assumes the worst assumes the worst rightly so like obviously Red Alma's like what are you doing Randolph you have to go talk to her you have to explain what's going on and he's like no 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 she she knows she knows that I wouldn't do that and And of course she does it but it's such a like it comes from like such a sweet place but then (laughs) Raina's like okay your mom prepared you for this you knew this was gonna gonna happen happen. this was not a marriage of love it's okay that you have feelings engaged but like you just need to use this now to help you achieve your goals which include marrying off this widow to a specific person and getting the orphan Almer who she takes care of the job of overseeing Lady Ella which she really wants and he's very scared of the very big man who is our hero I want to take an actual second to like sidebar into this cast of characters because I think this is the first Johanna Lindsay novel that so positively portrayed a sex worker that like she had this wonderful place nobody this is the most positive depiction of sex work in a romance novel I have ever read Uh, yeah bar none 1989 fucking doing it there's no weird crass Mm -mm. jokes about her job Mm -mm. there's no no weird crass jokes about her body or like her like being ridden hard and put away wet or like anything like that it's just like also nothing that's like the sexiest gal on the street Mm -mm. like red alma makes a living the way she makes a living and it's a living that like the town needs and like yeah that's discussed yeah and like that's actually really really nice yeah and like having that and then like having her in a space to like have randolph be like i don't know enough about sex with small women explain it to me please yeah okay so randolph's problem is premature ejaculation for the first three or so sex scenes he comes before she does and then just tires himself out and falls asleep Like an asshole. But also, like a lot of men who don't know what's going on. Totally. He realizes there's a problem. Because Raina tells him. Yeah, that she's frustrated. She's like, I don't like sex with you. There's also a part where when she tells him that, he's like, you're not supposed to. And she's like, fuck you. And he's like, that was a terrible joke. But I felt bad. 
Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Their entire conversation about where, cause she's heard that like her ladies enjoy it. Yeah. And then her best gay friend, Theo, which we haven't even talked about yet. Yeah. Also loves sex and is constantly like niggling her. He's like, how is it with the big man? And she's like, shut up. It wasn't like anything that you said it would be. And he's like, well, maybe try it again and maybe try it this way. And then all of this is so sex positive. Yeah. And like it's sex positive from every quarter and realistic in a true way. Right. Not in a way that's like anything goes. No, it's like, like, no, you should enjoy this and you should be more vocal. And like, I don't know what's going on. And it's about talking and sharing. It's about sex work being a normal part of the community. Yeah. And worthy of respect. It's also about not just communicating with your partner, but communicating with your friends and communicating with people, you know, and communicating with yourself. The feeling that she describes of her frustration and why she doesn't like having sex with him is like, because she's brought to the precipice and then she doesn't get to fall off and she gets so angry. Yeah. And I was like, which is relatable. So fucking relatable. But also Um, like, it's not that the first time she has sex, she's like about to come. No. And it's not like the second time she has sex, she's about to come. The first time she has sex, she does have her maiden head torn, which the use of the term maiden head, I think makes more sense here than it does in a lot of other books. And she bleeds a lot, but it's not weeping in the corner. No. you know, kind of thing. I mean, it's just like, I feel bad because I think if someone described this romance novel to me, mm-hmm. I would be like, sounds boring. But it's in its truisms, in its like everydayism. I think that's in what it is. In its vanillaism, it really celebrates that as something that's worthy of a story, interesting, sexy, not it has an really, arc. Yeah, but like not only worthy of a story, but is like worth continually commenting on. Like when Randolph says women not don't. settling. En- right. Women don't enjoy it and she's like fucking ask a woman and then he's like I never have and then he goes to Red Alma and he's like, you are a woman of experience. Please teach me. I'm worried about these things. She says that she is Here going is to enjoy it. Here's what I feel. Here's what I've been told. Yeah. And help me. Help me. And Red Alma gives him very realistic feedback and yeah. it takes him seriously. Yeah. And that part of the book I thought was so fucking well done and also felt like this is what I mean. Where it's like this book in comparison to the Johanna Lindsay of like 1984. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Things have happened. Yeah. You've had some thoughts. Yeah. Things have changed. Yes. Cool. I love all of it. I am so deeply here for it. And there's this moment where Red Alma's like, okay, your your grip is really strong and you're not running after your lady love because you've said that she's cool with it. So I'll take you at your word. But also you're worried about like her not coming. You can use your mouth. Yeah. And he does. And that's the solution to their problem. Yep. Which it often is. Yeah. To be honest. TBH. And so, yeah, that's the other thing. Like, oh, maybe you should try something different. Maybe like the narrative of sex that you've been sold isn't what's actually going to work for you. Right. And so you should try something else. And then it works for him. Yeah. Which is such a great story. It's such a great (laughs) story. But it's honestly like the story most like sexually happy people have come through. Yeah. I also want to like quickly pause on this for just one more second where it's like this is a moment where like this actually kind of felt like a pedagogy 
where it's like somebody who's like maybe in an unfulfilling sexual relationship, but doesn't necessarily have the words or know how to ask or have anyone to ask. They're like worried, like whatever their obstacle is, it's in their life. And here is a book where it's like you ask questions of trusted humans, you like solicit opinions and then you try something new. You go to a professional. You go to a professional. And there's this moment where Red Alma says she might be scandalized that you're going to use your mouth, but like help encourage her in that way. Like help her get over her insecurity. And I was like, don't just like put your mouth on it. Right. Like fucking like work down the body and like then like have a conversation about what's about to happen and then like encourage her. And like that was a moment where I was like, I felt like this little anecdote. I can see why Define at the Heart is one of Johanna Lindsay's most important works in terms of the fans and the readers, because like this felt like one of those moments where somebody in the pages telling you, I have heard of your insecurity and I want you to know that you're not alone in it and that there are things that you can do. You can love the man you're with and still be sexually unsatisfied and be upset about it. And I think like that's such an actually like sex positive message about what it means to like work to be together. And also like the caring of it, the squad part of it was so nice. I also think Joanna Lindsay is super generous with the hero in this and that he does. He says terrible things. He makes terrible snafus. And Joanna Lindsay points out like that's not him. That's the way he was acculturated. Yes. And he just needs new messages. He just needs a new story to tell himself. And, you know, what is fascinating about romance and is really so special is, so I think about works that you see the writer get better and better Mm -hmm. and it's really riveting and fun. Mm -hmm. So like I read the Preacher graphic novel series and Mm -hmm. you see the writers become better and better and better at telling stories. But with romance, you not only see them become technically better, but you also see because the nature of the text is so deeply personal Mm -hmm. and because it's written in this case by a woman for a female audience, you can't just say the personal is political. People throw that shit around. In this case, it is applicable because Joanna Lindsay, like our hero, isn't coming to this greater knowledge because of an internal struggle. It's because of larger cultural changes surrounding her and new ways of understanding the world. And the fact that she gives space for that, knowing the audience and everything else. So watching, what I'm meaning to say is watching a romance writer grow and create something like Defy Not the Heart after having written A Pirate's Love. Yeah. Right. Is like is so important because we can see changes in a worldview also coming into fruition. A worldview and also how that worldview translates into an understanding of oneself. And she also just became like a better and better like technical writer. Yes. Because each piece of this, it's humongous. It's a humongous cast of characters. It's a huge palette that she's painting with, but each color, each brush stroke matters, but never loses sight of the central story, which is so important to romance, which is the hero and heroine falling in love. Right, and how they grow together. And so Mm -hmm. like, I want to take one more thread because I think this is actually really important and and I'm glad that we're talking about this in terms of growth. Because again, this book was written in 1989 and Raina's best friend, Theo, is an out gay man. Flamboyant gay man. Flamboyant gay man in 1159. And there's this very weird, what I would call pretty typical scene for the era where you have a flamboyant gay man basically trying to like suss out whether Ranolf is like swinging that way. And Ranolf acts violently and rudely. And that continues for the rest of the novel in ways that like actually make it continually hard to like Ranolf. But yeah. as you've pointed out, Morgan, like this book 
book takes pains to say his behavior towards Theo, who is a kind and funny and loyal companion, is wrong. And this book knows that uh-huh. and always showcases it that way, that Reynolds' violence is not correct but understood in this context. Yeah. And then it takes the last three pages of this book to have our heroine finally be like, the way that you treat Theo sucks. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah. And she stands up for her friend. And because she's standing up for her friend is thereby being an ally because this is another example of the personal being political. Yep. You can't just throw it around. But do I love the fact that Theo is a very stereotypical gay man? No, it felt very like uh, Sex in the City. What's his name? It felt very Sex in the City. Yeah. Which there's also that moment where Sex in the City becomes self-aware. Yeah. When they try to set up their gay friends and one of them's like absolutely not Mm -hmm. I cannot relate to this man why would you think that Mm -hmm. is that what you think of me yeah as like this really one-dimensional anyway it's a pretty good episode (laughs) and a show that does not hold up very well it does not this is something that drives me crazy if we can sidebar if we can sidebar about this I think we should sidebar about this because the thing that this book reminded me of I'm like oh this is all the worst parts of the sex and city gay best friend yes because sex and the city does not hold up no well. It does not. It ages really poorly. Now, perhaps I could accept an argument that we have, we are standing on the shoulders of Charlotte, Miranda, Carrie, and Samantha, right? Sure. Like, we can look down on them because they have lifted us up. Sure. But still. Yeah. Does not age well. No. Does not. Anyways. Even the way in which they support each other, I'm like, there are only like five, maybe 11 scenes that I can think. I'm like, that is actually what friendship should and maneuver through. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Sidebar. Sidebar. Over. So we touched on all the conflicts in the novel. I don't know. Do you want to go in depth on all of them? I don't need to. Gosh, you should really read the book. It's so good. (laughs) It's so fun. Okay, so let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. Sexiest or weirdest? Uh, Let's do weirdest. Okay. Because I know what it is off the top of my head, so I can start. Great. So weirdest part for me was the Reaganomics in it. Mm. However, another kind of weird thing about it is that it is revelatory of this clear understanding of the difference between a matriarchy and a patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So Reina, when she's in charge, which has been the entire time her father's been out on crusades, her main projects as Lord of the Land have been to check in on the sick, on the ill, but also people like Red Alma and see how they're doing, really understand her community, think critically about the people who she's delegating to, and also not understanding it as delegation, understanding it as like, this is an agent of my project and not being jealous of her resources. Like she's very underprotected, but she does not understand herself even as lady of the land as more important than getting this other, you know, family from point A to point B in hostile territory. There are outlaws who live in the woods mm-hmm. um, between her property and one of our villains' properties. And Randolph, falsely and who, accused. And who do randomly, you know, commit highway robberies. She acknowledges it's a larger problem for the other estate than hers, but sometimes her travelers get attacked. And her husband's first reaction is when he becomes Lord is like, oh, so we hang these people. She's like, do you really want to do that? Do you really want to take another person's life? What they are doing is surviving and living in a way that they see fit. I think you're kind of being a dick about it if yeah. you're going to be like, oh, I'm going to kill 
kill them. Like they don't actually hurt people. And we later find out that they're like a merry band of robbers who have been expelled from the other property of Sir Richard, who is one of her marriage prospects and also the secret brother of Ranolf. Ranolf. He's a bad dude and he's been casting men out so that he can have his way with their women. And anyways, so there's that. And understanding that is such a beautiful feminist critique of power mm-hmm. and how if we're going to have a feminist state, what does that actually look like? And it doesn't necessarily look like a woman is in charge, but in that this kind of top down pyramidal way of thinking about power is fucked. Yeah. And that power is actually a net and a web in a way that women, I think, because of the way we're socialized and raised, and this is across cultures, mm-hmm. we're able to move that way. Whisper networks. We're able to share. Yep. We're able to share all sorts of labors and understand different kinds of labors all as labor, like household, sexual, family, work, wage. You know, it's all one and the same. Anyways, so she does this beautiful depiction of that. However, mm-hmm. our hero's journey, so his father shows up and our hero hates his dad, right? And he just happens to be there because he was on his way to see his other son who nobody realized was the other Lord and like blah, and blah, his blah. wagon wheel falls off. And he is so proud of his baby boy. He is. Because guess what? The reason he didn't know about him until he was nine was because his mom didn't want him to know about him. Isn't that messed up of her? No one ever asked like, why didn't she tell Hugh? But then it turns out that it wasn't that she didn't want him to know. It's that Hugh's own father, Randolph's grandfather, didn't fucking tell anyone because yeah. Randolph's mother told the Lord grandfather of what had happened and he's just like fuck. He's just like overwhelmed. He's like well this is bad. I'm gonna sit on this. I'm gonna sit on this for nine years and so then he sends him to a bad guy but he didn't know he was a bad guy. Other people had vouched for this Lord. And, and he wrote him and letters. guess what? He was gonna give Randolph land. He, he just wanted 25. him to work for it. When he was 25 because he wanted him to work for it and he is so pleased that his son has now earned everything he deserves. And it's like, he did not earn it. He kidnapped a woman, forced her into a marriage, essentially. And this like weird message of like, you done good, son, mm-hmm. unravels so much of the good work of this novel in mm-hmm. that like one four chapter arc of his dad explaining all of his motivations. And the novel makes it clear that we're supposed to be like, cool. That's also leads into my weirdest part. Perfect. <laughs> because we've already discussed Theo, which was going to be my other weirdest part. But It's with the dad where Raina's like, I'm going to resolve this father-son estrangement with my charming wit and stubbornness and I'll take whatever punishment comes. So she ends up like fighting with Ranulf in front of his estranged father and then Ranulf is going to beat her and then the dad is like, I should leave because I'm uncomfortable. And then like the whole thing becomes like super weird and like psychosexual where it's like, are you really going to beat her? She doesn't deserve it. And then they both yell at her because she keeps inserting herself in this like, you guys just need to talk to each other. And they're like, we'll do it in our own goddamn time. (laughs) And it's like, that got real weird real fast. And then like dad leaves and he's like, all right, I'm going to spank you. You deserve it because you wrote it in our marriage contract that I can't beat you with my fist and I wouldn't anyway because I'd murder you, but you can take a fucking spanking. Every single single time. Every single book includes a spanking. Yeah. Let's go through the order of events. One swat, kiss on the bottom, (laughs) quick little finger, and then a lot of spanks. 
and 15. then they have sex and then they have sex and like boy which is a weird order in which to do things it's such a weird order to do things <laughs> he's like you hot for it I was only gonna spank you the one time but like apparently you want me to spank you some more and it's like I'm not opposed and I was like and she was like no I don't want you to spank me some more and he spanks her some more yeah and he gives her the, every spank has a list of a grievance that he has with her uh, uh. Butts, 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 butts. Humiliation. It like is very into the humiliation of it too. Yep. Which, you know, some people are into, but like, here's the thing. And I said this with pirates love. People are into this. People, people are, are into, into it. it. People are into being dominated. People are into humiliation. If you could just give me like a heads up that that was going to be part of it. I mean, she I did. She just it. like, you know, it was like, written in the, the marriage thing. contest. Well, you know, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Joanna Lindsay prepares us with every book that there's going to be a spanking. She really does. Fair enough. However, the spanking scene comes like, out of this nowhere. Is the, this, every time I'm every like, time, every like, time I'm like, oh, and like, no, I agree. That's why it's my weirdest part. And, and like, like, it's not just like a swat on the bottom. No, like a playful, like, let a like, oh, this feels interesting. It's like the humiliation is part of it and is described in depth. And like, cool you're into that but this is like why people have trigger warnings there's this understanding of trigger warnings as being like so you can leave the room mostly it's there to give you a heads up like hey there's gonna be something offensive so instead of just having this reaction of like oh my god that's offensive like think about it more critically than that you know that it's going to be offensive so now you can think about it in other ways or you can just exit or you can exit but I think the larger people always assume like we're all gonna exit but it honestly it's mostly just a heads up it's It's mostly just a heads up to provide you with greater clarity yep. so that you can understand everything else that's going on. Right, because so you, you don't can, go into a blind corner. And I was like, in a film class and I watched this movie and the teacher was like, here are the specific scenes that I think are going to be disruptive. And I watched most of the movie and I was like, all right, you know, the weird stuff happened. And I was like, okay. But it allowed me to understand the story because I wasn't like, well, what's his grandpa doing? Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But she forgot to mention a cat fucking scene. Mm. I cannot remember anything of that movie (laughs) after that point. (laughs) After the cat rape. Because she didn't give me a heads up on the cat rape. And I went to her in office hours. I was like, I just wish I would have known that was coming. Because I full on just like white heat blacked out from seeing that. And sometimes that's part of your movie going experience, right? Like, you know, but I think knowing that something is coming allows you to prepare yourself mentally and to see it holistically yep. because whoever wrote this story went through several drafts and has had a lot of time to think about it in depth which is like my other problem with cartoon covers it's like if you're not expecting someone to like eat an asshole because there are two like goofy shapeless cartoons on the cover and then you read eating an asshole and you've never read that before you're like what books have the benefit of you can close them and come back to them sure but even still like but and that's even like- still and even still like I've read so many Joanna Lindsay's I know the spanking is coming yep. I was so relieved this one was at the end me too because the, it's just not for me <laughs> I keep reading it because I do it for you guys for the listeners because I feel like I have this larger project that I'm not just reading it for my own poops and giggles and if I were I would probably just skip over the spank parts because like I said it's not about like isn't this a fun interesting sensation it's about like humiliation look at you you dumb bitch I'm like that's what I think it's like this- I'm the daddy you know what it feels like it's like somebody pressed pause on and I thought about this a lot last night it's like somebody pressed 
pause on the Rhett Butler scene where he is going to dress Scarlet down. And like that feels like the move where it's like I am supposed to understand this as sexy, but like I mostly just understand this as like bad. To be fair, in 1989, there wasn't that much widely available pop culture that would be like, hey, if you're into sexual humiliation, here's some other stuff you can watch so that you either take it out on your readers in a more <laughs> you know holistic. What I mean? in a more holistic or clear way or like, you know, a more, you know, less assaultive, basically. Yeah. And it like it always comes at like this weird. This one was especially disruptive to me because he like spanks her once, then he kisses her bottom. Having read all of the other Joanna Lindsay's, I'm like, it's over now. Then he starts fingering her. I'm like, oh, OK, it was just the no, he's doing it again. <laughs> But also, but if you're into it, but I'm if you're sure into you're it, like, but it's also like I understand this book is so informative of so many others. Like there's a very intense spanking scene in Outlander that like feels deliberately born of this scene. Where it's like here you have a dude who's like my job as patriarch is to punish you for being whatever, and like you're a strong female who actually did the right thing, but I still have to punish you because those are the constraints of the time. And this also, will like, hurt you more than it hurts me. Slash, I take enjoyment of it yeah and like how and do so we do deal you. with that yeah and like that's what this feels like this feels like Johanna Lindsay is constantly working on that and it's like I've seen it in other books I've seen it like Outlander came out in 1992 and like this scene is like five chapters long also here's another example of the pleasure actually being political is we've had this super strong super assured super capable heroine who has not misstepped throughout mm-hmm. the entire novel who has been so careful and yet it feels like a self-correction like but also she's been a bad girl because she spoke up and so we just have to reset this dynamic so he is going to spank her like a child so that everything can return to, to its patriarchal Reagan exactly, order exactly and so it's not just about like ooh you like that you dirty girl it's not that mm-hmm. it's uh and you're subjugated and all's right with the world <laughs> yeah I'm the head of re- the house and now we're rebalanced. Ugh. Felt good for a second there when I was the mercenary and you the lordling. Yeah. What were we going to do with that? <sighs> yeah, that's my weirdest part. I'm glad we finally got this space to talk about all the spankings that happened in Joanna Lindsay. Me too. I've never thought so critical, but it like... I think about spanking and butts a lot now. You know, it's like you read it once, you read it twice. Like, Bleh, that's weird. That's not for me. And then three times you're like, what is going on? Fourth, and then time, fourth you're like, time, you're like, how do I feel? Fifth, fifth time, time, you're like, this is a pedagogy. We're fifth saying time, something yeah, broad. Fifth time, you've got very clear eyes about the spanking. <laughs> Sexiest bit. Sexiest bit. Okay, so this is not my sexiest bit, but it's something I want to acknowledge. Okay. And I'm worried that I'm taking your sexiest bit because it feels like something you might say. Let's hear it. Whenever we hear about the heroine through the hero's perspective, it is one of those books that takes pains to be like, she's a real plain Jane, except she's got big nipples on small breasts, which men like, I guess. (laughs) I did. I actually have it in my comments where I'm like, big nipples. This is coming up quite frequently. Yeah. And not just like, it starts with Theo being like, little did the Lord know that she had big ass nipples like, she seems pretty flat chested like 12 no. she's got big old nips 
like that are very reactive they're very responsive okay but like his male gaze were those like details that he was charmed by that you always want to be charmed by which i think is when like romance really shines through the hero's perspective and is really like holistically about pleasure so i think like after doing her wedding dance he talks about like baby hairs being like sweated down to her forehead and her flushed cheeks and being really just enamored with that he doesn't like joanna Lindsay doesn't make it gross by being like he thought about how he could make her baby hairs stick to her forehead. It's just like seeing her in that way, becoming fixated on details of her that make her especially beautiful and especially interesting to him. Everything is about how she's interesting. Mm -hmm. When she stands up on the middle of the bed on their wedding night and she's still in her shift, but it just was such an unexpected thing for him that she would just stand up in the middle of the bed and then be like, okay, I'm leaving, you know. Or whenever she tries to escape and she jumps on the horse and is just so assured of herself and how that is what attracts him to her. The book does a really great job creating like a physical metaphor and an emotional connection. Those were really sexy parts. I totally agree. Obviously, all uh, of those were hitting Isabeau's four corners. I will say one of the things there are good sex scenes, excellent sex scenes. We've talked about how the sex scenes have a natural arc, which is yeah. really great. What was your sexiest part? I think my sexiest parts in typical Isabeau fashion are those moments because we actually don't have a lot of internality of Ranulph. His internality functions in really weird ways where like Mm -hmm. Sir Walter, his best bud, gives us a lot of internality. Yeah. And the dad actually gives us a lot of internality. Mm -hmm. And like Lady Ella, the cat, gives us a lot of internality. And so like the moments in which we see his internality actually manifest through Raina's eyes, like that moment on the stairs when she's like, fuck, I've totally fucking reacted. And now like, yeah. what am I going to do? And like, he shows up bare ass naked and he's like, I kicked the cat out. And she's like, okay. He looks down at her feet and then just like picks her up. And she's like, you don't have to do that. And he's like, you're not fucking wearing slippers. It's cold. Like, yeah. let's go back to bed. It was like those kinds of moments where it's usually I'm a reader of romance who's like, I really love a mea culpa. Yeah. I really love an apology that's like emotional, <laughs> like full of its stuff. I like one of the things that was actually deeply and gratifyingly sexy was that his mea culpa was so physical uh-huh. and that she could always read it that way. Yeah. And like she did similar things like the way in which they became soft towards each other in like a very hard world. Yeah. And I thought was like actually incredibly sexy. And then of course like the cunnilingus. I was like this is amazing. Yeah. Great yeah. job Red Alma. I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the cunnilingus scene is the sexiest sex scene. Good job Red Alma. It does that thing where he like licks the inside of her belly mm. button but I was like I don't like it <laughs> maybe somebody does and sure. she'd be like I like having the inside of my belly button licked it's a piece I also but like, it like makes sense yeah in his journey right it's like <laughs> I'm prepping you for something there's like gonna be an internal move here it feels like a, it feels like a heads up yeah it feels like a heads it makes up. sense yeah so I love that scene but like I think you know as women we are so self-critical and I don't mean just in the way that we're like oh my belt looks dumb. Yeah. It's also in the way of like, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I hadn't said that. 
I wish I would have said that differently. But also like, how do I rearrange my social world? How do I talk to my boss? How do I manage this? Like, don't think men understand <laughs> the constant internal narrative of like, me, 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 me. What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? What can I do differently? I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. I'm yeah. so sorry. And not even like, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, just like taking ownership of self and living the examined life. I think there are very few women who live a truly unexamined life. I'm actually trying to think of anyone that I would say like off the top of my head that I feel like is truly unexamined. And it's like, I feel like I know people who act that way, but I don't think that they actually are based on what they say. I was in high school and this girl came up to me and we were working on something together. She asked me for my help on a project. She was like, you're so smart. And I was like, thank you. And she said, I just, I'm actually not smart. And I was like, I'm sure you're smart at something. And she was like, I'm worried that I'm not. And I think about it all the time. She was like this very beautiful girl, you know? And she was like, I just think I like missed the boat somewhere. She was a freshman in high school. Oh my God. But like, you know, she's that kind of person who you would see in a teen movie as this very two-dimensional character. But of course she wasn't because she's a woman. Of course she's constantly thinking of like, did I blow it? Like, what did I do? Like those TV commercials that are always telling you you're too hairy and you're too fat and your skin's too rough. And your period's too big. And your period's too big and your vagina's too wide. (laughs) You know, and like your ass is fat and only some people like it. How do you make it more appealing to the other people that your ass is fat and like, but body positive. Fitspo, not thinspo. Yeah, exactly. Fitspo, not thinspo. And it's just like this constant narrative creates an internal narrative that is critical not only of your body, but of the way you treat others, of the way you perceive the world, of the work that you do, of the way you understand yourself. Like letting go of body critique does not make you think of yourself less. It does create more space to think of yourself as like... A human who takes up space. Yeah, of like different ways. But there is no way. I think oftentimes women who write romance write the heroes. And this is part of the pleasure of reading romance as equally self-examined. I would say that's like a much more modern thing that like really takes off after 1996. But there are, you know, like, God, I'm just so tragic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, you know, like even that is being like having this self-examined life. What I find really wonderful about Ranoff and Defy Not the Heart is that he is living the unexamined life. His personality to him and to the world is a series of logical steps. He is doing the best he can. He doesn't interrogate why he wants to help Reyna, mm-hmm. right? He's not going to interrogate why. He has someone point out who's like, oh, she can make your life harder for you. You're going to eat some bad soup if you're mean to your wife. And that's enough for him. But I think but that's like actually creates, really important. I think it's a really beautiful, honest, clear. It feels true and earned. Randolph doesn't make me feel like I'm fantasizing about someone who doesn't exist. Yes. It makes me feel like the average male <laughs> internality is still deeply romantic, even if it isn't specific. Right. Even if he's not like, God, I love the way her baby hairs curl on her right. face. Right. And I think like he's that's- still like, I notice the way her baby hairs curl on her face and I want to be with her. It doesn't matter what the middle part is. Right. I like that her thighs grip this horse as she's escaping because she looks super strong and hot. But I think that's actually important. Like the idea that there's somebody in Randolph's life that says, happy wife, happy life, am I right? I think the moments of his self-interrogation are always called forth 
by others. Yeah. And I think like Raina does that. Walter does that to a certain extent. His dad showing up represents a real crisis for him because yeah. he doesn't have the wherewithal to do it himself. Right. And I think like that's actually one of the really fascinating things about Define at the Heart and potentially like this moment of romance where it's like a man or a hero rather. A hero is a kind of project that you have to initiate. Right. And like that's a weird fucked up thing. Yeah. And like really bizarre. But the way in which it's like not romanticized but also deeply romantic and Manolf is like when he has those calls to interrogate. Yeah. He does. The call to interrogate isn't necessarily an external force. Mm -hmm. It can be something that he likes or dislikes a good feeling or a bad feeling. Yeah. And he doesn't take into consideration like the poetry of her hair moving in the wind. No, there's none of that. He doesn't like, perhaps what I needed all along was a true companion. Like there's nothing like that. that. He never says anything like that. It's really just like good feeling, bad feeling, repeating that. How much can I take without addressing it? Yeah. I think this will be relatable. Sure. That when you're in a relationship with a straight man. Yes. You read romance novels and these straight men are giving you what you want without you asking for it. Yes. That doesn't happen. It does not. <laughs> you like, you know, because they don't. A refrain of a cisgender straight man is usually, I'm not a mind reader. Yeah, exactly. Right? And right. I'm like, romance novels are constantly telling me that you don't have to be a mind reader to read my face and like, like my body cues and like every my thought you history. have about me is poetry. It's just you're too, you're too bound up to release it. <laughs> Fucking release it. This novel is like, there's no poetry in there, but it doesn't mean it matters less. Right. And it doesn't mean that when he's called upon to try, he won't. And also be deeply suspicious of men who do expound poetry. We were in a master's in humanities program this and I'm going to awesome. tell you the verbose ones. <sighs> I think you're entirely right about Randolph <laughs> being both deeply romantic, but also in a way that feels incredibly relatable and real. Where it does, it's like, yeah. He's not socialized to think about his choices. He's not socialized to think deeply about these things. He's not even really socialized to think about others. The things that are attractive about him aren't his like secret internal thoughts. It's the things that he actually does. Right. And like, I think that's one of the things that like Ranulf is now a hero that I'm going to think about for a long time. And I think it's also really meaningful that Johanna Lindsay spends the last three pages of her book having him do a shitty action to Theo, the yeah. flamboyant gay best friend, have Raina call him out and have him be like, you called me out. Now I must think. Yeah. Now I must think. Womance. <laughs> Unabashedly. Womance. Womance. Read it. Read it. Read it. Read read it. Read it. it. This is... Read it. To me, mm. this isn't just like canon and like, this is an influential novel that other people will read. Like, burp, it's not burp, burp. Shanna. No, it's not Shanna, Shanna, this Shanna. This is canon mm-hmm. in the way that I love it. And also, I think it's so important. This might be the Moby Dick. This might be our Moby Dick. And with that, loosen your stays. Never your principles. Mwah! Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabeau. 
That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast until next week Mwah. <laughs>